Hello and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Hello again, my name is Josh Tate, and I'll be your co-host here on the Bold Love Podcast. Uh, And on this podcast, we want to facilitate conversations and tell stories that will encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Thanks for listening today and uh, our jam-packed season one where we talk to bridge builders, and we're excited to wrap up this season with our final two podcasts with Beth Moore and Omar Suleiman. It's going to be wild and crazy and must listen. So we're going out with a bang in season one. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss those two very powerful episodes. Um, you know, we're, we're blessed to have a, you know, a wide variety of listeners Um, Some actually hearing about Pastor Bob for the first time. So if you're unaware of the work that Pastor Bob is involved in, uh, you can check out more at bobrobertsjr.com. But overall, he's the founding pastor of Northwood Church in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, where he now serves as the senior global pastor. And he spends most of his time uh, with GlocalNet, which is a family of evangelical churches that plant multiplying churches, serve the needy in the surrounding areas and communities, and serves in a hard place in the world. And really the goal is to mobilize the church members in the public square. He is also the co-founder of the Multi-Faith Neighbors Network, uh, which was established to build resilient communities of mutual trust and respect among among faith leaders um, through um, authentic relationships and and, and learning and eating with each other and civic engagement and honest dialogue. Um, So this type of work is done through Multi-Faith Neighbors Network in the U.S. and around the world, um, working towards the goal of religious freedom for all and loving your neighbor. Um, He's also the founder and chairman of GVI, where they mobilize volunteers from around the world to partner with communities in Vietnam and see lives transformed there. So listen, uh, there's there's more, and it's a lot. Uh, So if you want to go check out more at bobrobertsjr.com, you can. But now, to introduce our friend and guest on today's episode, uh, today we get the pleasure of talking with Jenny Yang. She's the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief, where she provides oversight for all advocacy initiatives and policy positions the organization has, and leads the public relations effort as well. Uh, She's worked over a decade in refugee protection, immigration policy, and human rights, and was on an active deployment roster for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So we'll sit down with her and talk about um, how she began working with refugees, uh, how World Relief has adjusted kind of, kind of the, the current policies, and what are some immediate future adjustments in the uh, projected change of administration, and why there's t- tension between faith leaders on the topic of refugees. It's a good one. And uh, you're going to enjoy it here today. So for full show notes, links, details uh, of this episode, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com, bobrobertsjr.com. And I really, really hope that you enjoy this episode with our dear friend Jenny Yang and Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. here on the Bold Love Podcast. I am so excited today to have Jenny Yang with us. She's been one of my 
uh, heroes for many years as I've watched her and followed her over the years with what she does with refugees. I've had the privilege of being where she spoke in the past. I love your heart and what you're about. And uh, you really are one of my young heroes. I look at you and I go, go girl. God bless her. T- tell me, I'm curious, was it your upbringing that caused you to have a heart for this? Or did you just need a job and you yeah. wound up getting the job to make money off refugees? I want to know your story. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. No. Uh, well, I, Bob, I want to say it's it's been such an honor uh, knowing you over the years and the way that you've led your church community and really the world and having people understand God's heart for our neighbors. And I think the way that you live it out has inspired hundreds to know the heart of God. So thank you for the way that you lead. Thank you for our friendship. I've learned from you. I'm inspired by you all the time as well. So thanks for having me on. But yeah, so I have um, an interesting background in that I was born and raised in Philadelphia. So I'm a Philly girl at heart. Um, I'm a diehard Philly sports fan, which for many of you in Texas may mean oh, no. that you love or hate me. I know I won't bring that up, but um, but being in Philly and being raised in Philly was um, really formative to my upbringing. And of course, my parents are uh, immigrants, and so they came to the U.S. Um, my dad actually has a very fascinating story because his dad, so my grandfather, was a newspaper reporter. And during the start of the Korean War, the first people they targeted were media personnel. So my dad was three years old or so at the time. And he remembers soldiers knocking on his door, looking for my grandfather. And they literally pull my grandfather out of the house. And my father doesn't remember seeing him again. And so my dad was left with his mom. So his mom became really sick when my dad was around seven years old. And so she passed away. Dad became an orphan and he didn't have any other siblings. He didn't really have their close family to take care of him. But he became really good at fixing cars. And he won a national car repair competition. One of the judges uh, asked him if he wanted to come to the U.S. And he applied for a job at Ford Motor Company and was then sponsored to come to the U.S. And it was really his golden ticket because he had always dreamed of coming to the U.S., uh, and it's, it's interesting because when my dad was an orphan in Korea, he actually learned English by going to a church that was planted by American missionaries at the time. He would go into church just to learn English. And so he started learning English, but that was formative to his faith. So when he had the opportunity to immigrate to the U.S., he really felt like God had answered his prayers. And so my parents both attended this small Korean Presbyterian church on the outskirts of Philly which back then it was a few families. Now it's several thousand members strong in Northwest Philly. And so I always grew up going to church and every four or five years, my mom would take me and my brother back to Korea for the summer just to hang out because my mom comes from a big family, but my dad never went with us. And I always thought it was, he was busy because he was working, but I realized later on it's because he never wanted to go back. So for over 30 years, my dad never returned to Korea until uh, about 10 years ago, he decided that he needed to take his first trip and he went with my mom and spent um, some time there. But it's always brings back difficult memories for my father because of the hardships that he endured. And so when I think about issues of immigration or refugee issues, I always think about my dad because he didn't have to flee persecution, but he experienced it at a very young age. 
and he became orphaned because of what was going on with political conflict. He experienced desperate poverty. And so, so when I hear about the stories and the challenges that a lot of people today are facing, I am reminded of, of, of what my father went through. And it really has shaped what I'm doing now. Um, even though when I was little, I never thought that I would be in the work that I'm doing, actually. But isn't it incredible? I mean, think about it. You're a peacemaker. You're reconciling right in the very space that's your grandfather, your dad. I mean, that's a beautiful story. So, so let me ask you this. What about this life-changing experience in Spain that you had? I've heard something about that. Now, what is, what's that about? So I went to college um, at Johns Hopkins University right in Baltimore. And my junior year in, in, in school, I decided to study abroad in Madrid, Spain. And it's something I'd always wanted to do. And at that time, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, with my career. All I knew was um, I was studying international studies and I wanted to go abroad and improve my Spanish and explore and travel abroad in Spain. So I remember one time I was on my way back from class and there was this young uh, African woman and her child and we were riding the subway. And at one stop, a group of Spanish teenagers gets on the subway and they... um, pull out their, their spray paint and they started graffitiing all over the subway walls in Spanish, get out of my country, black people. And I looked at them and I looked at this young mother and right when I was going to say something, the Spanish teenagers got off the train. And then I ended up walking up to this mother and just asking in my Spanish if she was okay. And she didn't want to be bothered. And she could tell she was upset by what had happened. And it bothered me significantly that that had happened. Um, But what really actually bothered me even more was that no one on the subway car did anything. They didn't say anything to the Spanish teenagers. They didn't say anything to this young mother. I was the only one that said anything to this young woman, even though I'm not even from that country. I was a study abroad student there. And during that time, not only did the incident spark my imagination of, well, what is it like for this woman to go through this you know, blatant racism, I wonder what it feels like for her to feel welcome or not. Um, so that summer, I, I um, actually volunteered at an organization called SOS Racismo, and it's a grassroots organization that combats racism in Spain. And so I really wanted at a societal on a communal level to understand what would it look like to change the Spaniard people's opinions and feelings towards migrants or people that look different than them. But I also actually did research at the UN where I studied asylum laws and started to look at systemic issues to say, well, what legal uh, systems are needed for this woman to feel secure? And it, it was really through those two experiences that I realized for any migrant who faces vulnerability, they need to feel welcome at a systemic a legal level as well as a communal level. And if they have one but not the other, it can actually significantly hamper their flourishing. Oh, wow. um, so, so for example, if this woman had legal right to work and live in Spain, but daily she was being harassed and facing exp- uh, racism, she wouldn't feel welcome in that society. Whereas if she lived in Spain and she had a, a strong community of people who loved her and welcomed her, but she didn't have any legal rights to stay there, she would also increase, she would also face vulnerability and insecurity. So you, you really need both things. And I think even for us, as far as, as, as we think about that, um, you know, we need to pursue welcome on, on both ends of the spectrum there. Good. So Jenny, how, how did that lead you into world relief? Tell us a little bit how you got connected with them. 
Sure. So uh, because I studied in Baltimore, I um, have some friends that actually went to my church that worked at World Relief. And I never thought I would work of, um, for World Relief, but I actually worked in politics for a little bit. So for several months, I worked at a political consulting company in Maryland where I was doing local campaigning, fundraising, um, the whole thing. And I loved it in the beginning. And then I hated it at the end because I was working 16 hour days, traveling all across the state. And uh, I just didn't really enjoy it. But I knew in my heart that I actually always wanted to work with refugees or develop my knowledge and experience in that area. Um, And so as I was looking for a transition out of the political realm, my friend at World Belief told me, you should apply for a job here. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I kind of want to leave Baltimore. But I applied and they called me and um, they said, well, the job you applied for is filled, but the person who got the job you applied for left her position open in the refugee program. And I said, I had no idea that World Relief worked with refugees. And they proceeded to tell me about the work we do in the U.S. to resettle refugees, which I had no clue about. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started working at World Relief with, as a refugee case manager. I was managing the refugee caseload for World Relief um, before their arrival to the U.S., and always was doing advocacy work along the side of that full-time advocacy and policy position. And that's what I've been doing at World Relief for the past uh, over 10 years or so. So this question is for both of you. I know uh, immigration is a very sensitive topic. Is there tension in the evangelical community when talking about immigration and refugees? And why do you think that is? Is there like a misinformation or is it fear? So Bob and Jenny, do you want to each talk a little bit about that? I, 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 I want to tell you, Jenny, what I think, and then I want you to slice it and dice it. Would you let me do that? Sure. Uh, because I'm not, I'm not sure how you would answer this. I, I think there is a big amount of tension with evangelicals and refugees. Now, I don't think there used to be. Uh, I, I think it's high mark uh, was frankly, maybe 2014, 2015. Uh, I think the picture of the little boy uh, washed up on the Turkish shore, everybody was ready. We've got to do something. We've got to do this. And I mean, within six months, it's like, from what I saw, the entire conversation turned around. Nobody was saying anything. And, and more than anything, I don't think it's misinformation. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's uh, uh, anything, but we've politicized it. And as a result of politicizing it, well, the political tribe I'm a part of, uh, we don't, you know, we, we don't push that. So we don't talk about it. So I'm, I'm sorry to say, Something Jesus called us to do in Matthew 25, in the Hebrew scriptures, basically, we just kind of jettisoned it or said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's not as big of a thing as it once was. And that has really uh, broken my heart. I I would have liked to have seen if people were concerned how many were bringing, and let's talk about that. But let's don't ignore the whole thing. How, How do you see it? Slice and dice. Be honest with me. Yeah, I think um, this is the displacement crisis represents one of the greatest opportunities for the church to live out the gospel and to demonstrate to a hurting world what Jesus actually teaches about loving our neighbor. And I think at a time when the church should be leading with love and compassion, we're living out of fear. 
Uh, and this is borne out in a few years ago, World Relief did a survey with LifeRay Research where we found that 44% of the pastors we surveyed said that their church has a fear of refugees that are coming into their communities. Now, this survey was done years ago, so things may have changed, but it really is at the height as when you were saying in 2015, 2016, when the world was really um, paying attention to what was happening with, with what's Syrian refugees and others that were fleeing political conflict and persecution. And, and I think we've tied refugees to to either terrorism or refugees to, to conflict. And so there's this fear that if we welcome refugees, then we're welcoming either disorder or people that are different than us, people that are of a different religion. And it, 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 it's led to people clamping up and not wanting to welcome these very people who have suffered immensely. And so I think the church is oftentimes misinformed, as you were saying. Um, a lot of times I think they're apathetic. But a lot of times I think they are just operating out of a fear that um, a changing society and a changing culture, especially with demographic changes, is really going to um, uh, minimize uh, the church's uh, power or the, or the church's ability to um, practice religious freedom. I think there's, there's a lot of um, ties to that. But I do think that um, we have seen churches leading out of a place of love and of compassion and even at World Relief, we've partnered with a lot of churches um, and volunteers who are actively wanting to welcome refugees into their communities. Um, but it has become really challenging because uh, we've seen a lot of elected officials use refugees as you know a political talking point when we know behind every number is a real human person made uh, in the. Oh, way, Jenny, I'm just curious uh, how many of the refugees wind up being criminals? How many have done terrorist attacks? Can, any any information on that? Yeah, so actually uh, the United States has resettled over 3 million refugees and not a single refugee in over 40 years of the U.S. refugee resettlement program has ever taken the life of an American in a terrorist attack, ever in the history of the program. There, I can't wow. think of any other government program that is- Wait, wait, let's back up. Let that sink in. 3 million. Yeah. You're telling me how many, 3 million, out of 3 million over the last 40 years, not a single life has been taken? Yes, that is correct, in a terrorist attack. And so this idea that the program is insecure or we're letting in people that don't ascribe to our values couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, some of the refugees I know are some of the most proudest Americans because they understand what freedom is all about. They treasure the ability to worship in freedom and to have the freedom to raise their families in security. And so refugees can become our proudest Americans. And again, I think the church has an incredible opportunity to not only share the gospel with our new neighbors who may not be Christian, but to receive the gospel from many refugees who are arriving, who are vibrant believers and um, can teach us so much about um, what it meant for them to worship God overseas. What about current policy, uh, current American uh, immigration policy, how is it helping, hurting? What, what's going on there? Well, for, for U.S. immigration, there's two lifelines of protection that have been preserved on a, in a bipartisan fashion across administrations um, to uh, offer protection to those fleeing uh, persecution. So the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program is run by the State Department. They partner with organizations like World Relief to resettle refugees. 
Um, and so that program has actually been significantly dismantled because on average, the U.S. resettles 95,000 refugees uh, or the president set the ceiling for 95,000 refugees a year. Uh, but this year, when we're facing the world's worst displacement crisis, uh, we set it at 15,000. So at a time when we should be setting probably a higher number than ever before, we're setting a, a, a level that's been the lowest in U.S. history. And what's important to notice that President Ronald Reagan, President George W. Bush and others have actually set um, high refugee ceilings that allowed for hundreds of thousands of refugees to come in every year. Um, and I, I, my sense is that we should be doing the same. Um, the other way that someone can gain a protection in the U.S. is by seeking asylum. So it means that someone who crosses the U.S. border or arrives on the plane um, and is fleeing persecution can state that claim towards um, a an agent or somebody else. But right now, because of COVID, the border is effectively closed. But over the past few years, we've seen the separation of children from their parents, um, which is a new policy. We've also seen the inability for many asylum seekers to get access to the U.S. Um, to get legal counsel so that they can get asylum in the U.S. as well. So there's been a lot of changes that have significantly hampered the ability for... One of those changes I'm curious about, Jenny, tell me about... I was told that uh, initially uh, the administration was very concerned about Christian persecution and that we would be receiving uh, refugees and so forth from parts of the Middle East, parts of the world. I understand the importance of trying to uh, keep them there. At the same time, uh, my understanding is many of these people are in refugee camps and they're stuck and they can't get out. Is this true? Can, can you verify that or deny it or? Yeah, so because the administration set the refugee ceiling for 15,000, which is the lowest in history, it severely restricts the ability for anyone out of the millions of refugees there are to come into the program. So they did uh, set a specific category for refugees that are fleeing religious persecution last year. So they said that if you are fleeing religious persecution, we'll set aside 5,000 slots for you to be able to come in. 5,000 out of you know millions is such a small number. And it, it, the administration can say, well, we set aside the 5,000 that are fleeing religious persecution, but that is such a low number. And what's actually happened is that um, through the category, a lot of refugees coming are coming from Ukraine um, and are coming from Burma, uh, but we haven't seen many refugees that are coming from Syria or from Iraq or other places um, that have ongoing persecution. So. You know, our concern is to make sure the program works for those who are most vulnerable. And if I can just share one story, there is yeah. um, a Pakistani woman, Aruj Nirmal, who was married and her husband was beaten and tortured for publishing Christian material on a website. And so they both lived in Pakistan at the time um, and they fled that situation. And Aruj, um, the wife, was resettled to the United States as a refugee to her Spokane, Washington office. And she actually thought that her husband was dead. She didn't think that he had survived that beating. Um, but what we found out was that he was actually alive and was a refugee in Sri Lanka. And so for over four years, they've been waiting to reunite. And we've been advocating for him to come into the U.S. Um, through the program. And we have been unable to do that. So he still lives in Sri Lanka. Uh, he talks to his wife in Spokane, Washington, uh, almost every day. 
And um, we believe that having a more robust program would allow people like um, this believer to be able to come in through the program. And these are the people that we're talking about that haven't been able to come in. What would you recommend for the future uh, for, forward motion of uh, the refugee programs? What would you, and by the way, how many refugees are there in the world? I hear different numbers. Yeah, so there are 80 million people that are forcibly displaced and 26 million of that number are those who are refugees. So by a refugee, by definition, you have to uh, actually flee across the international border. And so if you are in Syria, for example, and you're fleeing conflict, but you go to another part of Syria, you're not considered a refugee. You actually have to flee into Jordan or into Turkey. Um, and so the large majority actually of those who are displaced are internally displaced persons. So may, most people don't leave their own country, uh, but for a, a significant number around 26 million, they are actually refugees living in another country. Um, and so, yeah. What would you say moving forward, our policies should be? What would you like to see happen in America and refugees? Well, the, the UN actually estimates that out of the 26 million refugees that are around the world, that 1.4 million of them are in need of resettlement. And what that means is that they are uh, in a refugee camp and they or urban setting, they cannot go home and they are not finding any kind of security in the place to which they fled. Uh, what that means is that traditionally the U.S. has resettled around 10% of um, those in need of resettlement. And so it would mean that we take around 140,000 of those refugees. And so I think that should be our continued leadership position as a country is to take 10% of uh, the refugees that are in need of resettlement and to continue to work with the UN to identify who those people are. I think for the US to do that, it would send a strong signal to other countries that they should keep their um, you know, communities open to ensure that refugees can find safety there. Because even if we take 1% of that number, uh, most refugees will never be resettled. So it's really important that they find safety where they are. Um, and they can continue um, um, find assistance there too. So I've had some crazy ideas about this. I'm going to run a couple of them past you because the reality is no matter how many refugees there are at the end of the day, we can't take them all. And at the end of the day, they really don't want to leave their home. I mean, if, if their, their preference is to stay. Uh, and I was reading the uh, Old Testament about cities of refuge and I, I have really, have you heard how they're building these cities in China? They built them for the peasants to come, cities that would hold a million. And mm -hmm. they literally have done this. And I've thought to myself, I think about President Carter and Habitat for Humanity. Why couldn't we do that for refugees? Like the, the huge refugee camp, whether it's the Rohingya that I visited uh, in Bangladesh or the uh, the Syrians that you see in the camps in Jordan. Do we ever think beyond just let's resettle them in another country? Is there any new fresh thinking about the, the reality is we need to help all refugees, not just the ones that get to come here. So I've been thinking a lot about that because a lot of the refugees that I meet, very educated. It may be a doctor or an engineer. Uh, you know, yeah, there's cab drivers, but not everybody's a cab driver. There's a lot of highly, highly educated people. They just don't have an opportunity. You've almost got every skill you need to build a city in that camp. 
And I've toyed with a crazy idea like that. Has anyone ever talked about that or? Yeah, well, I think the thing that we always try to emphasize when it comes to refugees is that ultimately you're right. All refugees want to go back home, that they don't want to remain as refugees where they are. Um, but the biggest, I think one of the greatest challenges when it comes to refugee protection is, is what does it mean for them to find some durable solution where they are? And so what has that has meant is that we do not want refugees staying in camps because in camps, you oftentimes cannot leave. You can't find work opportunities. Um, there's no freedom of movement, et cetera. So camp settings are, are, are often pretty dire places to be. Most refugees don't like camp settings. So what that means is that a lot of refugees live in, in urban settings where they can actually find work, where they can live in apartment buildings, they can build some kind of community. Uh, and so one of the things we've, we've tried to do is to work with host governments to make sure they have the resources to actually integrate refugees and not keep them separated from the larger society. Because I think in many areas around the world, governments will house refugees in a, a camp-like setting off without any interaction with the host community. And some of the best places we've seen where refugees thrive is actually when they are treated like a, a native born citizen in the country to which they fled. And in some cases, um, Many countries like Tanzania, for example, they integrated hundreds of thousands of Burundians who had been living there for 15 to 20 years and granted them citizenship because they were seemingly Tanzanian because they had been there for so long. So things like that, I think, are great solutions to really protracted situations because in a lot of cases, refugees can be in a host community for 10, 15, 20 years. And if you live in, in that kind of setting in a refugee camp, I think it can be really dehumanizing. But I think integrating refugees into the local community as much as possible really helps um, not just the local community, but refugees uh, with the right resources and with the right strategies as well. That's good. Jenny, we're blessed to have a, a very large audience of people of many different faiths, right? And we're actually involved in an organization that has a wide array of, of faith leaders from pastors to rabbis to imams. Um, and we actually do grassroots efforts and a lot of uh, bridge building and peacemaking efforts. What would you say are some examples that some of these local congregations and communities uh, can work together to get involved with maybe refugees in their areas? What, what do you suggest for them? Yeah, well, I think it's really important, as you mentioned, that there be a sense of mutuality whenever churches engage on issues related to welcoming the stranger or welcoming immigrants into your communities, because I think sometimes we can feel like we have the power or the resources or the abilities when we actually have so much to learn from our immigrant neighbors. And, and so anytime we enter into that relationship, uh, it's my encouragement to do it with an open hand. Um, so that we can learn as much from our immigrant neighbors um, as much as we want to serve them. And so uh, at World Relief, we have an office in, um, uh, we had an office actually in Nashville, Tennessee, that really um, work with a lot of local churches there. And they um, actually, in one incredible story, uh, there was a, a church that um, shared the, um, a Jesus video with some Bhutanese refugees. And um, they baptized over 70 Bhutanese refugees on one Sunday service after like a month. And they actually started their own church. And even though they were predominantly Buddhists and they started and they said to this church that hosted them in Nashville, they said, don't 
don't um, share the Jesus video anymore because we want to share the Jesus videos because we're going to do that. So they started doing that and they started picking up their own community members, sharing the Jesus video with them and literally baptizing dozens of new believers into the kingdom every, you know, every few months or so. So it's just an incredible story of, of um, again, of refugees being empowered, um, of coming from different, you know, faith backgrounds and yet feeling like they themselves were leading in their community. and. Um, I mean, that's just one example, but um, I know in Sacramento that our office there has done a lot of work with the Muslim community um, in just um, having churches come together to serve Iraqi refugees and Afghan refugees there. Uh, and in doing so, they've had potlucks and, you know, Christmas celebrations and, and holiday celebrations, Thanksgiving. So it's really been an incredible um uh, thing to witness just how many churches are operating out a sense of love and compassion and mutuality. Something funny that happened, Jenny. Uh, so we do these uh, uh, retreats with pastors and this particular city was pastors and imams in Austin, Texas. You may know Matt Carter. Uh, he's a friend of mine. We've been around the world together. And so the imam is named Atia in Austin, big mosque. He's an Egyptian background guy, scholar, they didn't know one another until they went on a trip with me to uh, Uzbekistan, where we did a pastor imam retreat with the Uzbeks. So we come back. He knew nothing about Austin Stone. This was this was right before Matt had left. Matt knew nothing about Atiyah until we went to the community center of Austin Stone. And Atiyah said, this is your church? And Matt said, yeah. He said, I've been coming here for years, helping with the refugees, helping them to learn English. And then Matt's response was, uh-uh, you're the imam I saw. I never put it together. Wow. So I know, isn't that crazy? So so it's it's kind of cool. I think one of the, okay, Jenny, I know this is not about missiology, but and yet it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I'm convinced the future of missiology is not what we do to people but what we do with people. And I think Matt and Atia illustrated that. And, uh, you know, all right, I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical, but I'm going to serve these people regardless. And Atia's response was, this is so cool that you Christians have provided this building, are providing these services. And uh, I'm intrigued by what we might be able to actually even do together. Uh, when, When I went to the refugee camp, uh, and Cox's Bazaar. Uh, it was interesting with all the Rohingya, Majid, me, and uh, Rabbi and Ambassador David Saperstein. We're all there together and we're figuring out what can we do with Muslims? What can we do with Christians? What can we do with Jews? And the reality is sharing your faith is sharing a life. I don't know. What do you think about that? Have you ever seen that done before? Yeah, I mean, those are just phenomenal examples of us working community together, because I think you're definitely right that this is a missiological issue that Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And he also taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. I think by loving our immigrant neighbors, we're able to fulfill the Great Commission and carry out the Great Commandment at the same time, because not only are we sharing the good news with our neighbors from all around the world, 
but we are loving our neighbors as ourselves. And it's been transformative, the relationships I've developed with refugees in my community. Um, I know for many churches around the world doing the same. And I think anytime we get out of our comfort zones and enter into these relationships, we just have a, a deeper understanding of God's love for the world. And that's what Christ calls us to. So I think what you've done, Bob, and, and just what you continue to do to challenge Christian understanding of our mission is is so important. And I think um, us doing everything we can right now when the displacement crisis is greater than it's ever been since World War II uh, means that we have to do everything we can to step up to the challenge. It's amazing the disconnect we have between we're going to raise all this money to send missionaries all over the world. But ain't one of them refugees better not move next door to me. Uh-uh. <laughs> you know? Yes. Right. I mean, the mission field has come to our own backyard and whether the church sees it as such, that's, that's the question. And, you know, we, the revelation talks about the diversity and the beauty of different people from all backgrounds worshiping before the throne of God. And if that's the picture of heaven, how come we don't want that for our own communities and neighborhoods? And I think for us to embrace that diversity with its challenges, uh, with its opportunities, I think for us, for many of us who are American Christians, I think that's going to be a key question. This may shock you. I've discovered that Middle Eastern people are better at explaining the gospel to Middle Eastern people than white people. I don't understand that, but it's true. And I've discovered Africans are better explained to Af- Our church has been in Vietnam now for 25 years. And you know, Believe it or not, Vietnamese still do it better than Americans. I don't know yes. why we have this view of the body of Christ, of the church, that they're just waiting for us Americans to do it all for them. I mean, gosh, the, the body of Christ needs to be mobilized. I had the best time, Jenny, talking to these, uh, I, I won't say the country, but these refugees from a particular country about a year and a half ago, so I did. And the reason I did is, you know, I do church planting here in the States, not around the world. Well, what happened was several of these guys had accepted Christ and they were not getting asylum and they were being sent back to their country. And instead of being bitter, they were actually excited about it. Mm. Literally, they had me and some other people and there were people from their own country that were also visiting with them and training. And the whole conversation was, we get to go back. and. Be, be the lights, uh, you know, for Jesus in, in these countries. And I, I don't know. I think we want all of our missions nice and neat and organized. Have you ever seen these little glitter balls? Like you go to New York City and there's this little ball, like maybe your little kid wants. You shake it, you know, and all the glitter of the skyline. Here's what I think is going on. I think God has the glitter ball. And I just think he's shaking it. Like crazy. We're going, oh, Lord, no. And he's going, oh, yeah, it's going to be fun, Bob. <laughs> Chill out. Yeah. And I think immigrant communities in the U.S. are are leading the church in revival and in uh, in discipleship. And really, I think we have so much to learn from them. And I think it is my hope that the U.S. church will learn from the African church, the Asian church and and really what it means to to um, follow Jesus, um, because it, even the churches in the Middle East that we see 
are housing refugees in their buildings, are, are um, you know, are ministering to them. And many of these refugees are meeting Christians for the first time by entering into a Georgianian church. And, and many of these believers are leaning into the opportunity. And I, I just hope that we can do the same um, and really share and receive the gospel from, from our new neighbors. I have a young guy in the Lord. I love him with all my heart. He was on our staff. His last name's Yang too, uh, mm. Daniel Yang, but he's, he was Hmong. But I told him when he first came to our staff and we got to know him, I said, Daniel, what's your dream? I want to go and I want to reach the Hmong. He said, no, Daniel. Daniel, God brought you to America to reach white people mm. and brown people and Hmong people. I, I'm with you, Jenny. I, I think they could be our best hope. I mean, and, and here's what's cool. For whatever reason, white Americans have a fascination, believe it or not, with people of different culture who have mm. stories and, you know, and, and uh, they have life experiences that we don't have. Okay, I got, I got to quit telling you stories, but one of my young sons in the ministry, I love him with a couple of them, a couple of Vietnamese guys. They wound up in the States and I got to know them. We brought them over. And so I was speaking at the seminary. Gosh, this has been 15 years ago. And so they're going to the seminary, but like most refugees, especially Vietnamese, they're very quiet. They stay to their own. They're in the back of the class. And so I start off the class and say, this is so exciting what God is doing in the world today. There are people that have been beaten, their parents, they've been in prison for the sake of the gospel. And guys, do you realize that there's great revival that's going on in their countries? And how would you like to meet these guys? What would it be like to learn from them? And boy, everybody's just going, it's a class of about 75 people. They're going, yes, wouldn't that be incredible? I said, what would you, I'm just curious, how many of you guys in here would love to meet somebody like that? Everybody raised their hand and said, man, Bob, that'd be incredible. And I said, well, there's two of them sitting right here. There's me and there's Fook. And I had them come up and stand with me. And man, just lost it because the thought that God is doing something big in their life and in their countries. But here these guys are with purity. What would you say? We'll wrap up. What would you say to the American church right now uh, moving forward? What would, you, what would you say to pastors, imams and rabbis? They're all listening. What would you say to the church, the mosque, the synagogue, the Buddhist temple, the Sikh temple, the Hindus? What would you say to us as people of faith, regardless of the religion? Here's what I would challenge you with. Yeah, I think the greatest demonstration of our faith, uh, whatever faith tradition we come from, is when we treat our neighbors as ourselves, is when we desire for our neighbors to experience the same freedoms and the privileges we have, and we act upon that, and we try to provide for that for our neighbors in very tangible ways. And so I think for the church to to meet the immediate needs of our immigrant neighbors by um, you know, providing them with meals by visiting them in their homes, that is an immediate need that um, many communities of faith can fulfill um, as refugees come into our communities. Um, but I also think each of us are called to be stewards of not just our resources and our time, but our influence. And being a steward of our influence means using our voice to speak up for policies that will actually allow for the flourishing of our neighbors. 
Um, our elected officials are making really important decisions that will impact whether or not a family can stay together, whether or not someone can remain in this country, how many refugees to let into this country. And our elected officials have to hear from us because they're entering into a season in which they're maybe newly elected to office or they're taking a new position. They're trying to figure out the priorities for their time in office. And wouldn't it be incredible if we work together across faith communities to speak out with one voice to say, we want to welcome refugees. You need to set the refugee ceiling for 95,000, which is the historic norm. We need to continue to create welcoming communities. Uh, we cannot have you know, local decrees that don't allow refugees to be resettled in our state or in our community. Uh, if we can work together in a concerted voice to speak into those things, I think it would be extremely, extremely powerful. So I think there's going to be ongoing opportunities, um, sign-on letters, events, you know, webinars that we can be doing together um, at a national level, but at a local level, it really is linking arms um, and entering into each other's spaces um, to do everything we can to ensure that refugees feel a tangible sense of welcome. Um, again, the church is at the front lines of, of helping them feel welcome. Okay, critical question, Jenny. What's your favorite food? Oh my gosh. Um, it's funny. I am, um, I'm Korean. So I love Korean barbecue. That's oh, my, favorite. I love it. I love it. I love so, food. And I love that you ask a food question because food is my love language. I love cooking. I love baking. Um, and so you'll always see me like cooking up different things, but, um, I also love cheese. So, um, yeah, That's I love, like, I like, yeah, I know it's totally different, but I love, um, like Italian food. So I love pastas and cheeses and you like kimchi. I love kimchi. Yes. My mom actually has started making kimchi since quarantine. So I FaceTime with her and she's at her, like she's at her, um, like with bowls of, of kimchi and, uh, and learning how to make it. And, and, uh, it's been, it's awesome. I don't know why I tried. I can't take it. But it's acquired taste. Like when I was younger, I did not like kimchi. Um, and it's funny because a lot of restaurants now use kimchi, even though it, most people think it smells horrible. It's an acquired <laughs> taste, so I totally understand um, that a lot of people don't like it. Uh, well, Bob's, Bob's love language is bluebell ice cream. So oh, that's right. Oh, is that right? That's yeah. funny because, you know, I, I was born in Philly, but my parents moved to Bluebell and my parents still live there. And that's the town that I grew up in pretty much. Wow. Yeah, so you got, I don't, you got an in. You have an in now, Bob. I know, but you know, Bluebell <laughs> ice cream is not from Bluebell where I grew up. It's like another Bluebell, I think. So, um, but it, I grew up it, in the town of Bluebell. It's called Brennan, but yeah. but th- that's okay. But yeah. you know, I, I I do love Bluebell ice cream, but I'm doing a keto thing for. I've been on it for four days. I probably got another three days left, but yeah, it doesn't. I, I want to create an ice cream diet. So uh, much love to everyone for listening to our podcast today with Jenny Yang and Pastor Bob. Uh, We appreciate you joining us. Um, Hey, if you want more information about uh, the podcast or show notes, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com, bobrobertsjr.com. And thank you for listening here on the Bolo Podcast. We want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time.